This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 13 of Equestrian Legends. Hello, I'm Chris Stafford, and my guest this week is endurance rider Julie Sir. Juliet Weston Sir was born on April 21, 1924, in San Jose, California. One of three children, Julie spent her childhood convincing her non-horsey parents, Will and Juliet Weston, that her love for horses was not a passing phase. She first rode at the age of eight, but it was not until her seventies that she took her first riding lesson. Instead, Julie carved her own unique career as a rider that was to break records in endurance competitions and milestones in horseback adventures around the globe. Julie married Bob Sir in 1946, shortly after she graduated from Stanford University, and took an extended time away from horses to raise her family. Since her first ride in the world-renowned 100-mile Tevis Cup, Julie has completed 22 times out of 29 starts. She has collected three Hagen Cups for the best-conditioned horse to finish in the top 10, and she famously garnered three in one year, the Turtle Award for being last to finish, the Hard Luck Award when her horse fell and she endured a full-body mud bath, and for being the oldest rider. With a recorded 30,282 miles in competition, which represents 63 100-mile rides and almost 550-mile rides, Julie last completed the Tevis Cup at the age of 76, although four years later she made her final attempt and came within two miles of another record finish. Her adventure rides have taken her from the remote expanses of Outer Mongolia to the searing heights of the Himalayas. The author of Ten Feet Tall Still, Julie is working on a second book and still sitting tall in the saddle at 87. Julie and Bob Sir, now deceased, have three children, Barbara, Robert, Nancy, now deceased, and John, as well as six grandchildren. Julie lives in Scotts Valley, California. Well, Julie, with already over 30,000 miles of competition ride miles, to your credit and already an autobiography you're working on a second one I have to ask you at the age of 87 what motivates you now Uh, I think I'm very blessed because I have good health and I have never uh, the passion I have for the horses and the horse world has never seemed to decrease with age I just um, I still love it it's it, it it's everything to me and you're still living in the area which has been home to you all of your life, really, hasn't it, in California? Well, I'm, I'm within 40 miles of where I was born. Uh, I did uh, was born in the Santa Clara Valley, uh, which is now Silicon Valley, but I now live in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and uh, so I'm not very far from my birthplace. And, and obviously a climate that is compatible with your chosen sport of endurance? Yes. Uh-huh. Beautiful climate. Beautiful climate. And, of course, it, your husband, Bob, is sadly no longer with us. He passed away last year. Um, but he was a great companion to you, both as a husband, a partner, and in life, but also as a riding partner. 
do you still have the urge to go out on the trails to to do a, another ride, or are you quite content just riding around home? I, at the moment, uh, Chris, I do not have a horse uh, that could do a, a 50-mile ride. My two uh, mares have Cushing's disease, and so they're on a medication. And as you may know, in endurance, you are not allowed to have anything. And uh, we've banned almost every substance except Adequan, I think. But um, the motivation is still there. If I could find a short horse... If I could find a very smooth gated horse and I could find uh, one that was safe and not spooky on the trail, I would be perfectly willing to get out and try, I think. Although I do make sort of a basket case out of myself <laughs> by not sleeping a couple of days ahead of time and uh, getting nervous. Uh, I have found that I always get nervous before a ride, but once I get on the horse and get moving down the trail, then I think I'm sort of all business and whatever nerves I have, uh, I'm too busy thinking about the horse and not about myself any longer. Well, you have been quoted as saying that you've never started a race ride unafraid. Is that fear or is it just the excitement and the anticipation of that long journey? I would say it's the excitement and the anticipation. I have uh, been afraid on rides, but no, ordinarily, no, I'm not afraid of being hurt. Well, you, you also have this wonderful quote when I think of the story we're going to tell of your life, Julie, and you said, I mustn't cry for what has been, but rejoice that it happened at all. Is that how you reflect now on your life with horses? Uh, y- yes, Uh I, I, I still know there's a lot of joy ahead of me, a lot of rejoicing ahead of me in the horse world. And even if it's just wrapping my arms around a horse's neck and smelling them and nuzzling them and just feeding them and listening to them, uh, there's nothing more satisfying on the earth than to throw your horse a flake of hay and see it there munching away contentedly. It's just a good feeling. And those horsey genes have been passed on to your family, of course, with your daughter Barbara being an endurance ride competitor as well. Do you take great satisfaction and pride still now watching your children around horses? Oh, absolutely. And the two boys have no interest at all, but Barbara lives only about a quarter of a mile from me. I see her almost every day. We probably ride together two or three times a week, and I'm sure that's one of the things that keeps me in the saddle. Well, let's go back to your very early days, Julie, if we may, and to where you began life. As you said, you were originally from California. You were born Uh in San Jose, California. And your parents were, of course, survivors of the Great Depression. And uh, you had obviously a very interesting and colorful childhood. Um, Let's talk about your parents, Will and and Juliet, because they were very sort of steadfast characters in their own ways, weren't they? Uh, Yes, and uh, actually uh, they survived the Depression. My father had uh, some pear orchards in the Santa Clara Valley, and um, it was definitely a patriarchal society. I uh, was thought to be a very obedient child, but I had very kind parents, and uh, they were never in favor of my horse interest, which I think started out, uh, you know, when I was very young, three or four years old. I can remember looking at pony pictures and uh, wanting a pony. Um, they uh, provided them for a while, and then I think they felt that I was getting too horse interested, and they tried to uh, take me in another direction. 
Well, they also insisted on a good education for you too, but you did spend some of your childhood playing around the orchards where your father had, the, of course, the pear orchards down there in the valley. Um, they were early memories, I suppose, of you riding, Julie. Well, they are. They ha- I had a pony uh, when I was eight, and it bucked me off and, and cut my chin open, and uh, I still have the scars. Every time I look in the mirror, I'm reminded of that. Uh, but... Um, then there was a long period when I didn't have any horses simply because they didn't like uh, a daughter uh, wearing jeans or uh, even maybe saying sit a straddle of a horse. They uh, were of a different generation, and young ladies weren't running around the barnyard uh, playing with their horses and picking up their feet and things like that. They They didn't think it was proper behavior. (laughs) Well, you were one of three children. You have a sister, Nancy, and a brother, Bill. What what were their interests as a a child? Did you play with with your your siblings, or were you always out wanting to play with your pony? Uh, I think I, my sister and I were very different. Actually, she uh, died in June, but uh, she was interested more in maybe the ladylike protocol from my parents, which I had. And uh, she ended up in San Francisco for many years, happy with the big city life. Uh, I am basically a, a country girl. Uh, my brother was four years younger. Uh, he had no interest in the horses, but he uh, was interested in tractors and motors and engines and things like that. But I can remember when my father still used uh, work horses to pull the um, boxes of fruit out of the orchards. And I can remember when he first got the first Model A trucks that replaced the horses. And uh, I think maybe that was it. I watched the horses out the window and dreamt about them. And I just, you know, a, a horse-crazy girl. Well, talking again about your father, he, I think you have said in you that he was a, of a patriarchal society at that time. He was a World War I veteran as well, but he was a very serious and intellectual personality that, that instilled very strong principles in you, didn't he? Yes, and when you say intellectual, he was quite a student, and he, uh, uh, we had all sorts of books and libraries in the house, and I never showed the proper interest in them that I think he had hoped for. <laughs> but they insisted- He was very interested in the classics and Greek literature and things like that, and uh, I didn't lean that way, although I do more a little now as I've matured. <laughs> <laughs> but they insisted on a good education for you, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Uh, but you, uh, your relationship with your mother was a very close one. You were very fond of your mother, weren't you? Oh, I, I adored my mother. She was uh, the quintessential lady. She was uh, very proper. I never saw her with her hair in curlers. I never saw her when she wasn't properly dressed. Uh, there was no walking around the home in a house coat or anything like that. She was a, 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 a very beautiful woman, a very kind, very loving mother. So what would you say you took away from their parenting, Julie, um, as, an, as a young woman? I think one thing is uh, I was taught not to complain. I think I was taught to, if I had problems, to keep them with myself, in, within myself and not to burden others with them. Uh, so even to this day, I think I tend uh, to put on a happy face regardless of the circumstances. And would those principles and values be something that you passed on to your children? Yes, I think very definitely. My children do not complain, and sometimes I wish they would tell me more. <laughs> Which probably stands them in good stead, of, especially Barbara when she's out on a long ride. 
Barbara does not complain. Uh, uh, we, we get along very well. I, I adore her. She's a wonderful riding companion, a wonderful daughter, and if I did have really serious troubles, she's the one I would talk to. Well, I mentioned that education was something that your parents insisted would be a priority. Talk us through your education. You went away to school at a very difficult time, of course, in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually sent uh, to a school in Massachusetts, a girls' sporting, uh, boarding school, and in those days you did not fly across the country. You went across the country in a transcontinental train, which took about three and a half days, and my father's last words to me were on the platform as my mother who accompanied me uh, on the train were to get the horses out of my system and uh, my mother bless her heart when we got back to the school signed me up for some uh, riding in the New England countryside that fall and I don't know if she ever told my father but she she understood that this was difficult for me and then of course during that period I was there World War Two started, and in those days, uh, you didn't fly back and forth across the country for Christmas holidays or things like that, so I was gone the whole school year, and uh, my mother wrote me every single day. I always received a letter from her, uh, but I was scared being on the East Coast because I read about some of the things going on in the West Coast, and particularly my mother writing about the blackout curtains and the uh, war ration stamps and things of that nature. Knowing that was going on, Julie, did that make you even more homesick? Uh, Yes, but uh, I will have to say the homesickness started before the war started. I was homesick from the day I walked off the ranch and went to the East Coast, and I wasn't uh, very brave there. I think I spent a lot of time crying, but a lot of teenagers go through a difficult period, so I guess I was fairly normal. But how did you apply yourself to the lessons and concentrate with uh, knowing what was happening back home, with the homesickness that you were feeling, and, and but just still a connection with horses? You were allowed to ride as well. Well, just, I think I had six rides back there in the fall to New England. It was very colorful. Um, in regard to uh, the homesickness, um, I never really got over it. I uh, was very immature. I... Uh, it wasn't a happy time in my life, but in the big picture, Chris, if I look back, it was a, a, probably a very good thing in my life. It told me to stick something out. Uh, my parents never knew of my distress. I uh, was av- obviously not very mature. You know, I was just a, a crying teenager. How did you feel about academia? When I got back there, it was a five-year high school, and I had had three years here. Uh, and I was told when I uh, arrived at the school after some testing that I was not academically ready to graduate in a year. I'd have to be there for two years. Well, that really settled me down in a hurry, and I can't tell you how many times I studied under the covers at night with a flashlight because I was going to get out of there in a year. (laughs) I made it. Well, we do want to mention, of course, the war effort. As you said, it was during the outbreak of World War II and the Japanese were attacking the West Coast. There was some involvement, I believe, of yourself in in that war effort when you did get back to California in terms of uh, helping sell war bonds. And I believe you were rolling bandages for the Red Cross at one time. Yes, I was. And uh, I became a prolific letter writer because they told us we should uh, help the morale of our fighting men by writing letters. So I wrote lots of letters. But I did. I sold war bonds on uh, University Avenue in Palo Alto and uh, rolled bandages, which uh, 
uh, was kind of a difficult task, actually. You had to cut them in little squares, and there could be nothing, little threads sticking out or anything like that. You had to tuck them back in. and uh, it, it was good. I, I, I enjoyed that. Did it stand you in good stead for rolling bandages with your horses? <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way before. There was a plus there. Well, your father at that time was also involved in the war effort. He was chairman of the local draft board, which uh-huh. is pretty tough to decide who went to war and, and who didn't. Did you sense that this was also a very testing time for them? How did they take it? It was a very difficult time for my father because I had my brother coming along who also was going to be of draft age shortly. Uh, Actually, the war ended before he did, but uh, my father... had a tough time. The the mothers would come in there wringing their hands and crying, and the fathers uh, saying they needed their sons, actually because the Santa Clara Valley then was primarily agricultural. Many of these young men were needed in the fields to harvest the crops. And so uh, I still have my father's little three-by-five uh, file cards with the name of the different uh, young men who came before him, their age, what their education was, and uh, how much they were needed at home. I, he, I still have all those records. And then he, he, with the help of the other members of the board, but he was the chairman, had to make the decision whether a certain young man went to war or he stayed home. And it was hard on my father. I, I can just imagine it must have been uh, something he would live with forever. Mm-hmm. And at that time, of course, you did go back to Stanford University, didn't you? Did complete, yes. Did complete that. And how, how did you feel about that? Uh, was that something that you oh, welcomed I, I or knew, knew was necessary? Uh, there, was never, there was never any doubt uh, but what I was expected to go to college for four years. And actually, Bob and I had to postpone our marriage for one year because I... I had promised my father I would graduate. I really wanted to get married at the end of my junior year, but I told him I would graduate, and so I fulfilled that promise. Well, let's talk about Bob, because you met uh, Ensign Robert, sir, as he was then, uh, during a very interesting exercise. Uh, tell us the story. <laughs> it was unusual. Uh, Bob flew blimps, and they patrolled the West Coast looking for Japanese submarines because they could hover and spot them down uh, through the water, which a, aircraft, a flying aircraft uh, couldn't. Uh, but anyway, I lived five miles sort of uh, south uh, east of Moffett Field, and the prevailing winds uh, took the uh, free balloons, which you had to fly in order to learn how wind currents would be so that if your engines went out on the blimps, you'd be able to use wind currents to get back home. Uh, and so they sent them up in these free balloons, and they would change elevations, and the prevailing winds took them over my dad's ranch uh, all one summer. Sometimes two or three a day went over, and I had uh, a horse belonging to a young man who was uh, fighting in the South Pacific, and he left the horse for me to take care of while he was gone, and so I used to chase balloons on my horse, and eventually they came down. <laughs> and you were just and, waiting and, for that lucky balloon to drop down, and there would be your future husband. Uh-huh, <laughs> and actually where that is now is there's a huge factory. It was probably a, a mile or two miles from my home, and I, you know, I was riding my horse up and down the orchards all the time anyway, and so it was just fun to go and see where all these men had dropped out of the sky. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, as you as you mentioned, he was Ensign Robert Sir at that time. You were married in 1946, just uh, uh, two weeks after getting your Stanford degree. And then you went off on your 
honeymoon to Canada. That would have been your first foreign trip, would it be? Uh Uh-huh, it was. And we traveled all the way across Canada. And interestingly enough, the main Trans-Canadian Highway had just been opened up uh, for the last maybe a couple of weeks before we were there. And we really drove hours on some days and never saw another car. And then we ended up coming down... uh, uh, to Sault Ste. Marie and uh, into Ohio where Bob's parents had a store and I, we both worked in the store that summer. And then Bob had an insurance agency. So give us a, a sense, Julie, of what young married life would have been for you at that time, post-war. Well, I did have four children in six years. <laughs> That'll tell you what my life was like. But Bob actually started his insurance business uh, in the small home we were on, on my dad's ranch, and um, uh, I was the secretary, and because I had these small children, I had to wait until about 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night before I could do the secretarial work, and I frequently stayed up till 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning doing this typing form, and in and, and those days, uh, we had carbon copies of things, and if you made a mistake when you were typing even one letter, you had to not only erase that, but then the carbon copy, so I learned to be a good typist. And uh, after a few years of that, uh, he moved in with his office into Santa Clara, and I became a full-time mother. And so you naturally took a little break from from riding, from doing anything very serious with horses. Oh, uh, Chris, I went 20 years where I never saw, patted a horse, or even was near one. Uh, there was a, a whole 20-year period in my life where I never rode a horse. I never, I had been convinced by my father, who, when I was married, uh, turned my little barn into a tool shed, and he said, uh, you're a married woman, you'll never ride a horse again. And I sort of believed him, I guess. And we, we couldn't have afforded to have a horse at that time anyway, raising the children and trying to get everybody educated. Uh, there was no way I could have had a horse. And I, I never at that time thought they would ever play a part in my future. Well, so from your childhood then, when you, you had your ponies, you had, I think, mm-hmm. Chaz and Bill, didn't you, from your cousins? and they, Uh-huh, uh, they, correct. They, and, and you're completely self-taught. I, I, I believe you had your first riding lesson, was it at the age of 70? Probably closer to 75. I took <laughs> six standard riding lessons. And uh, I found out that my body uh, sort of ached after him, and I also had to trailer the horse quite a ways to the lesson because I was taking a lesson on my own horse, and uh, I just sort of did the six, and, and that was it. I wish now, in retrospect, had I known I was still going to be riding uh, well into my 80s, I wish I had taken some centered riding lessons, and I had very good instructors nearby, and unfortunately I didn't take advantage of it, and I regret that. Well, now uh, we come obviously to the period where you've had your four children, and there's an opportunity to get a ride again, Julian, get back in the tack. Tell us how that came about. Uh, actually, considering my father did not like my horse interest, uh, he was responsible for <laughs> sort of renewing it. Uh, he had a friend who lived in the Saratoga Hills near where I lived uh, who had two Tennessee walking horses, and, and my, the, uh, my father's friend was his age, and uh, he said he had a horse that needed exercising, and my father said, well, Sissy, which was a nickname, uh, Sissy used to love to ride, why don't you call her, and... Uh, the, the man did call me, and uh, I went for a ride, and I really knew within the first quarter of a mile that I had to return to horses. 
So everything was coming together then in, in your life. Was that, in, in, if you look back at your life now, Julie, was that sort of a turning point, do you think, that the passion for horses was always there? It was just a matter of when that would come back into your life. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't say that I mourn not having horses in my life for 20 years. I just didn't think about them much. I was too busy being a mother and sort of community active, and I just... Uh, uh, never thought they'd be in my future, but boy, once I went for a ride, I knew that, you know, uh, I had a very generous husband, and he said, if that's what you want to do, find yourself a horse. It was only two years later, well, after you resumed, that you made your way onto the first Tevis Cup ride, and we're <laughs> going to talk about the many Tevis Cup rides that you had, but let's give our listeners a sense of how this came about, Julie, because Wendell Roby, of course, is well known with his association with endurance riding and with the Tevis Cup in particularly. And I believe he had some influence over you at that time too, didn't he? Uh, Very definitely. I was just riding with a friend one day and she said, you know, they have this long ride up there in Auburn. And I uh, never got enough of riding. If I rode for an hour, I wished I'd been able to be out there longer. If I rode for two hours, I wished I'd been out there longer. But uh, anyway, I heard about this ride and it just sounded like fun. I was going to ride from Lake Tahoe to Auburn on the old, partly on the old Pony Express trail and through the gold country and I thought that sounded fine and uh, I trained my horse around the golf course which was not the proper thing by a long shot. Uh, I did call Wendell Roby and talk to him and uh, I said what do I do and he said you have a lot of wet saddle blankets in the barn at night and so my horse wasn't very well in very good physical condition uh, uh, as far as stamina. She just hadn't been trained properly and it was very easy to get the saddle blanket wet uh, because she uh, wasn't in great condition. And so when it was wet, I thought, now I've done my job, and I'd put the horse away. And the horse was boarded out. I didn't have the horse in my yard. Uh, and I thought I'd done my job. Um, my comeuppance came when I actually got to the ride. <laughs> Explain that to us. Well, there were 56 entries that year, and it started on the shores of Lake Tahoe. And uh I'd never heard of anybody crewing it. Uh, my husband and the pickup truck and three kids and the dog dropped me there at Lake Tahoe with a horse, and then they went on to meet me 100 miles down the road, uh, which uh, was very naive on my part. And then they, uh, then I rode the horse, and I was the 56th person out of 56 to get to that first vet stop at my horse's pulse didn't come down and uh, I was totally beaten. I had worn some brand new jeans and they rubbed uh, terrible wounds from which I still have the scars on the inside of my knees. I was a totally beaten, defeated uh, person. It didn't um, beat your spirit in the long term by any means because it just whet your appetite to come back again, didn't it? Uh, yes, and I was very, very fortunate and that um, uh, Wendell Roby's secretary and I sort of hit it off and she had a horse that she had won the Tevis Cup on she was the first woman to win the Tevis Cup and she thought he was too old he was 16 then and she said but he can get you through the ride and this horse lived at the finish line literally within 100 feet of the finish line so she brought him down to me I didn't have a horse trailer and uh, I trained him in the Saratoga Hills and uh I took him back up there to Tahoe the following year, and he just trotted home as nice as could be, and I had an absolutely wonderful time. I was very lucky in being given a horse that was already trained, already very fit. 
uh, knew the trail. The horse that is headed for home on that trail, the people that live in the Auburn and the foothills there, have somewhat of an advantage because the horse always knows where he's going. Absolutely. Well, as I said in my introduction, Julie, your record in the Tevis Cup is extraordinary. You started it 29 times and you completed it 22 of those. You won the Hagen Cup three times, and that, we should explain, of course, is the best conditioned horse out of top 10 to finish. That's an incredible record, and it would take us a long time to tell the story of all of those rides. So I'm going to ask you to pick out just one or two stories, if you would, from your memories of riding that wonderful Tevis Cup trail. Um, uh, my best horse that won the Hagen Cup three times was uh, from Nebraska, and his uh, name was Gazal. He's a very elegant, very proud horse. Uh, he simply, uh, I never started that ride thinking, well, I'm going to win it or I'm going to top ten it. The horse just put me there. He was uh, so excellent. Uh, I would say the most outstanding time probably was when uh, I rode 40 miles of that trail all by myself. I was trailing the first place horse by about 15 minutes the whole day. So for 40 miles of that exceptional trail, I was out there by myself, and it really was a spiritual journey. They, they, yes, they were spiritual journeys. They were something, I suppose, unless anyone has been on the trail for any length of time, it would be hard to appreciate just how much in touch you are with the horse and in terms of you know, psychologically as well as physically, too, being the challenge that it is to ride for so long. Are there any other really strong memories that come to mind when you look back at your rides over that uh, trail that you must know so well now? Well, I don't know if you know about my last effort, which ended in failure, uh, but it still uh, was in one way a triumph. But that was very close, Julie. (laughs) But I have to uh, tell you, I got 98 and a half miles, and I was too physically exhausted to... uh, push the horse any faster to get to the finish line before the cutoff time so I missed the cutoff time by about 15 minutes but uh, I will have to say I enjoyed thoroughly the probably the first 60 miles and then it, it got tough I, I knew I was uh, the, the trail was beating me I always figured Chris the trail was my competition I never sought to win the ride uh, sometimes my horse was so good they'd put me right up there in front but it wasn't a a destination I had thought about ahead of time. Um, it just uh, that that ninety-eight and a half mile ride. Uh, just uh, I, I loved it. I loved it. It beat me. I always think the trail, as I said, was my competition. I wanted to beat the trail. Uh, this time the trail beat me, and I always said that I would quit when the trail beat me. The other times that I was disqualified was because the trail didn't meet, beat me personally, but maybe it beat my horse. Maybe he was lame or maybe his pulse didn't recover, but it hadn't beaten me. This time the trail beat me, and that told me that that, that was it. That was the final ride. But you did complete it when you were 76. That was the last uh, time you completed, was it, Barbara? Uh, when I was 76, yes. That was and that was the year 2000. What happened... Uh, 
I always set the family into turmoil for several months before the ride because I'd get so obsessed with it. And so I, I quit it for years. And then uh, my daughter said to me, Mother, in the year 2000, she said, if you ride it this year, you will have ridden it in five de- different decades, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and down the 2000s. And so that's what got me back out there when I was 76. And I had a good ride. Had a nice horse and a good ride. Well, that was an extraordinary record, and of course, the many 50-milers that you did as well. And that's all in competition, but you also had a very colorful um, life, I would say, riding adventures around the world, too. Uh, Some wonderful experiences from Australia to Alaska, Mongolia, Egypt, Kenya, Botswana, Belize, (laughs) Peru. Uh, Is there anything left, Julie? And Not without Bob. Bob was my partner. We got along well. I can uh, actually say even though, like in Mongolia, where you live in little tents and uh, things for weeks on end, uh, we always got along well. We always enjoyed the challenge, enjoyed each other's company, and uh, it, it worked out well. Well, of course, you were secretary of the American Endurance Ride Conference for a while, and that, I believe, opened so many doors and invitations to this overseas travel. Well, it did, and, and the interesting thing was, while we, we had to pay for our own airfare, once we got, uh, well, to uh, South Africa, to France, to uh, Australia, we were just taken into the people's homes. So that all we paid for was our airfare. They provided horses for us and, 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 and housed us and... I actually think maybe even they paid the entry fees. I can't remember that. In return, we had people from France here and people from Australia here. Uh, never had uh, anybody from uh, Africa, but would have welcomed them. And interestingly, I noted when you rode along the Alaskan pipeline, you did have an escort who began with you, but he soon realized that he had better things to do in the comfort <laughs> of his office, didn't he? Did you set right. a pace for him? Well, what we did, uh, and this was a wonderful group of people, and once again, uh, these were people we were put in touch with but hadn't met until we arrived on the scene. They provided us with horses uh, because uh, uh, they, uh, people had some extra horses, and they in turn visited uh, us here. Um, the pipeline is uh, very uh, vulnerable, I guess, to terrorists or something, so when this horseman's group was permitted permission to ride along the pipeline right by its side, uh, they got finally concerned about it, and they sent a man along to ride horseback with us to be sure we didn't do anything to the pipeline, uh, but he got saddle sore very quickly, <laughs> and after a couple of days, he was through, and then they surveyed us by helicopter maybe four or five times a day just to be sure we weren't doing anything we shouldn't be doing. It's interesting because the pipeline, you could actually hear uh, a lot of it's underground, but some of it's above the ground, uh, sometimes on sort of stilts eight or ten feet above the ground, and you could actually hear the oil rushing through it. Wow. It was interesting. And you ventured down to another sound. That was Milford Sound in the South Island of New Zealand or as part of your Australian-New Zealand trip. What me- memories do you have of that excursion, Julie? Uh, we actually, in New Zealand, we rode horses that we just rented. New Zealand is absolutely spectacular. And uh, that was not a horseback riding trip. We were en route to Australia where we were going to ride a 50-mile ride, but we thought as long as we were going to be in that area, we'd better do something in New Zealand. That's when we went to Milford Sound. But, um, and then we did rent horses a couple of times just to ride around. 
And you mentioned Mongolia, of course. That was very interesting because you, you did two trips, didn't you, once to yes. outer Mongolia mm-hmm. as well. And you, in, in, I think, endured some pretty harsh terrain, as it is in Mongolia, and some bleak weather as well. What do you remember now looking back on that experience? Because I think you had some interesting things to drink as well while you were there. Uh, well, <laughs> we certainly did warm beer, but um, all uh, my biggest memories are of these very, very sturdy little Mongolian ponies, uh, and they. Uh, I think the Mongolians re- prefer actually you refer to them as horses, but they were pony according to our standards. Uh, they were sturdy. They were tough. Uh, they did everything you asked them to do. They were uh, family pets. Uh, uh, I just can't say enough about them. They're, they're just as tough as that. I would love. I would have loved to have brought one home to this country. I would have just loved to have brought the little Mongolian pony I rode the first time we went to Mongolia. And I, I, excuse me, the second time. The first time we rode the Mongolian polo ponies because uh, they'd had a terrible drought and the little ponies that lived off the land were uh, not in very good shape. And then Kenya and e- Egypt, some wonderfully exotic rides there uh, that, that obviously must uh, you add to your scrapbook of memories. Uh, I think when we went to Botswana, the um, tour group, my husband and I and our 10-year-old grandson were the only ones there. Uh, that was uh, uh, absolutely, I can't even express how marvelous it was. We had absolutely excellent horses. And we go out riding sometimes for six or seven hours a day, and you would see wildlife that you can't even believe what we saw, herds and herds of zebra, giraffes that when they ran, these great elegant legs unfolded sort of in slow motion, and the big necks swayed back and forth. Uh, went around the corner one day, and uh, three elephants who had been rolling in the mud and were sort of dripping wet and kind of black-looking, kind of frightened us. We turned around and went the other way. Uh, never really fearful because I was so in awe of it all. And, of course, our guide always had a gun nearby, and particularly when we went across uh, rivers, uh, none where the horses had to swim, but some certainly uh, almost up to their bellies. Uh, he did then take his gun out of the whole, well, the side thing he had on the saddle, uh, and I think that's because he was worried about marine life. Uh, I guess we call them alligators. They call them crocodiles. <laughs> well, all that riding you did in those far-flung countries, Julie, probably stood you in good stead for your endurance riding, taught you a few tricks, did it? Uh-huh, I think so, because we rode different horses. We kind of changed horses off and on on those trips. But uh, in those days, I had no fear I would have gotten on anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you, it you certainly did over the course of your riding career. I'm, I'm thinking of the many different horses that you rode on endurance. You mentioned already some. Ramadi was another one, of course, the famous Marinera, the Pasifino, and from which you built your breeding stock for your breeding program, mm-hmm. didn't you? I think maybe she had, oh, what, nine or ten maybe. Right. And then uh, I kept a couple of her daughters and bred them. I adored that mare. She had tremendous uh, physical athletic cap- capabilities, but she was uh, emotionally not really good for endurance. She got herself too wired, and uh, uh, what she taught me was that uh, a horse doesn't necessarily quit when it's tired. I always thought, well, I don't have to worry about overriding a horse because if it gets tired, it'll quit. 
she taught me no that uh, uh, horses have so much heart that they will not give up even when they should and it used to be looking in her eyes after a ride while she was still physically fit and could pass the vet exams I could look in her eyes and know that I had uh, taken a terrible toll on her and it made me very uh, conscious and uh, compassionate about uh, being sure that this is what the horse wanted to do and that it wasn't just being an obedient animal uh, with so much heart that it could hurt itself. It was She was a real learning experience to me. Now, you, what brought about that breeding program, Julie? Was it something you thought, well, of all the rides that I've had and on the different horses that I've had over the years, I know what I want to produce for this sport and uh, and, and you knew how to do it. What was your motivation well, she, for breeding? She was the second horse I had after I, I grew, grew up, you know, and at age 40 got back to the horses. Um, and I just adored her, and she, I knew she was too emotionally wound up to uh, continue the endurance riding, although she did win a best condition on a 50-mile race, which was a pretty fast race. Um, and so she, I still rode her around here, and then I got very interested in breeding her, and the foals that she had uh, were very sought after, and they sort of supported my horse interests for many years here. I was able to raise the foals and, and sell almost all of them by weaning time. Uh, I sold one that I was unhappy about that I didn't think had gone to a proper home and actually uh, sicked a friend after it and, and got it back. Now, clearly, obviously, your choice of breeds would be those that were well-suited to endurance, not least of all the Pasifinos and Peruvians. What other breeds do you favor? Of course, the Arabian, Arabian horses are well, most popular. After Gazal after did so well for us, we went uh, to Scottsdale, where his mother was, and we bought his mother. And we brought her home, and so I probably had four or five... Um, well, I probably had three foals from her, but then a friend leased her twice in Brederton, Akulteki, and um, uh, produced beautiful babies. Unfortunately, none of them went to homes where anybody was interested in endurance. And you, you mentioned that being Arabian, of course, and, and it was Bob. He started riding pretty late, and even later got into endurance riding with you. So you clearly influenced him in a big way. And he rode an Arabian horse, didn't he? Was it Ramadi? He uh-huh. he, he rode in competition, uh-huh. and that oh, was he, he that rode was, quite a few. <laughs> and that was yes, but I'm thinking of the first r- ride because that was your first win, wasn't it, on Ramadi? Yes, uh huh. And that that was sort of um, uh, I always felt a little bit badly or guilty about it because the ride started over on the the coast of the Pacific there and ended up actually ended up in Ramadi's corral and he just went home as fast as his little legs could churn and he knew where Marinero was back there and he just uh, you know he was going home. And C F Warham was another favorite buddy. I think you called him Arabian Gelding. Aged 32 now? He's, he's He'll be 32 in February, and uh, believe it or not, I'll be riding him tomorrow, and he, we are, our trails around here are very steep, and he will give me a good, enthusiastic ride, and I will have him on a tight raid once we turn around and head for home. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of those different breeds, uh, Pasifinos, Peruvians, Arabians, the, the different, uh, and, and the crossbreds as, as well, of course, that you've, you've, you've ridden mm-hmm. over the years. What would you say to people coming into this sport, Julie, who are 
thinking of which breed they should favor, what, what would you recommend? Well, I, I would recommend not necessarily a purebred Arabian, but something with some Arabian blood. However, the horse who has set the record on the Tavis Cup for completing it the most times is a quarter horse. So I really think all, almost any breed of horse can do it, but if I had, a, uh, for instance, a Morgan horse or a quarter horse and I wanted to breed uh, an endurance horse, I would probably cross it with an Arabian. Yes, I mean, there, there are so many choices, but as you say, to have that cross gives you a bit of, uh, a bit of best of both worlds, uh-huh. I suppose. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, of course, this career is over a very long period of time, as you, as you pointed out earlier, several decades of riding. But there was a point where you went lame yourself, didn't you? Well, uh, yes. <laughs> I have very long, slender feet, and uh, the arch has simply started to collapse. I didn't go to an orthopedist uh, when I should have. I should have uh, had some sort of arch support. So as a result, uh, I was in, in very bad trouble of quite crippled and uh, told by a doctor that I would uh, uh, probably be in a wheelchair. That was 1998, and uh, he was wrong, fortunately. I did get off my feet, which is why I happened to write that book, was I was told to stay off my feet as much as I could, and I still wanted to be a part of the horse world, so I wrote a horse story. And that horse story, of course, is uh, what I alluded to earlier, 10 Feet Tall Still, published in 2002, which told the story so far. And it gave you, as you say, something to do while you were lay, laid up, but you were determined to get back in the tack. How long, well, how long was that I had rehab? To, I, ha- I had to make some changes. The, the desire and the passion to ride was still there. And I went from a little narrow English stirrup to a five-inch wide western stirrup, um, and therefore, I can support uh, my weight with the soles of my feet, uh, keeping the weight off of the arches, which were the ones that were so weak and worn out. Uh, and that made a huge difference. I also think I uh, learned to grip a little more, be a more balanced rider, so I didn't have to put as much weight in the stirrups, uh, which was uh, the thing that was difficult with the weak ankles and terrible arches. And, uh, and I get along quite well now. I, I, if you uh, ask me, I would say that uh, there's been no deterioration in the last couple of years. I'm still out and about and feeding horses three times a day and uh, enjoying life. That is marvelous. And, of course, in choosing your horse, you also, I think, have another criteria about buying a horse to uh, keep yourself in it. And it's the six S's, isn't it? Explain to our listeners what those six S's are. Well, actually, it's three S's, but I could add a few more S's. (laughs) To begin with, it's a safe horse. Uh, I do not need to go off and break a hip. Uh, So I do no, no longer the spooky horses, the dancing horses, the sideways going horses that I used to think were wonderful and set me up and made me feel really terrific, I no longer want. I, I want a very safe horse that uh, doesn't spook when it sees a yellow leaf on a green bush or something. Uh, then I want a short horse because it makes it easier to get on and off. Uh, and sometimes you get off, have to get off unexpectedly when you're out in the woods uh, uh, for some reason, and you need to be able to get on. And so what's about, about 14, 2, or 3? Is that ideal? Yeah, uh-huh. mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be happy with 14 or 14, 1 at this point. <laughs> and I know most people like a much larger horse. And then it is the smooth horse. I, uh, there's a tremendous difference in gates uh, of horses. Uh, and if you can get one that has a really smooth gait, uh, <clears throat> I find you can really post all day long and not get tired. 
uh, I think even at this point, the one little mare I have that has Cushing's disease, I really think I could get on her and post for hours and hours and not get tired. So she's just she just glow, flows down the trail as smooth as can be. She doesn't rack my body in any way. So my three S's are the safe horse, the smooth horse, and the short horse. But I also now would like a sweet disposition, so there's another S, and obviously the very sound horse, so there's another S. So we, we will get to six S's. I think, yes, sure-footed would be another one, I suppose. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and not forgetting sanity. <laughs> right, very important. <laughs> You do carry with you uh, what you referred to as your security blanket. It is a kit that you mm-hmm. carry on a ride. Give us a sense of what would be in that kit bag for you as your well, first it's aid. It's just a little fanny pack that uh, wraps around my waist very nicely. So if I go off the horse, I still have it with me. It's not, you know, in a saddlebag going down the trail without me. Uh, my most important item is a whistle. Uh, if you go off your horse and you're in the woods and nobody can hear you, you can you can yell and scream for a long time and exhaust yourself. Uh, a whistle a whistle can be heard much further away, and it doesn't take any energy to blow. So I think the most important thing is a whistle. Uh, then in our area we have what are called uh, ground hornets or wasps, which are sometimes in the trail. Uh, if you go over them on your horse and they, you stir them up and they get angry and mad at you, they come after you in a big way. And I have been stung badly maybe uh, 10 or 12 times, so I always carry Benadryl. Uh, I don't think I'm allergic to uh, bee stings or wasp stings, but I think Benadryl is a big safety factor. And if I have been stung, uh, I always take one. And, of course, Benadryl is an antihistamine, and uh, I think that's very important. Then I always carry a lipstick because you don't know who you're going to meet out there. And then uh, a couple of little Band-Aids. Um, what else do I have in it? I think if I were, thought I was going to be out after dark, I'd carry a little flashlight and maybe some matches. Oh, one of the things I um, carry is one of those, uh, I think you call them space blankets. And they're a big piece of sort of uh, uh, foam uh, plastic, and they, they weigh nothing, and they fit in the fanny pack smoothly. Uh, and they are what you would wrap yourself in if you did get out there at nighttime and got stuck. You could wrap yourself in that and it would keep your body warmth with you. And, and maybe a knife, a pocket knife? Yes, excuse me, yeah. And, and I have a pocket knife in my uh, pocket at all times, so yes, that's with me too. That wouldn't be in the fanny pack, that's probably in my pocket. I still ride in blue jeans, although during endurance rides I do wear tights because the blue jeans do rub if you're out there a long time. Well, some good advice. Well, terrific memories of all these rides. And when you look back on it all, what, how would you like to be remembered for your career in endurance riding, Julie? Um, well, I always think records are made to be broken, and I suppose somebody will break Gazal's record of the three Hagen Cups, but I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that, that I brought the horse through in the best condition of any of the other horses. and Or the, I should say the horse brought me through. Um, he was just excellent uh i think some of my most fun things have been being out there with bob on the pony express trail where you're out there for hours by yourself and it's um uh country that's not well populated and you might ride for hours and hours and never see another person and you uh became very interested in how our pioneer fathers and the covered wagons ever made it across the prairies it's uh 
incredible experience where you don't know where the next water hole is or where you're going to be that night. And of course, we have a camper that follows or meets us at the end of the day, and we have running water and stuff like that, and food and stuff for the horses. And uh, I'm I'm in awe of what our pioneers did. With your enormous collection of Tevis Cup buckles, where are they all? Do you keep them in a case or do you wear them? Um, I have two on a display in a cabinet in my husband's den. Uh, The others are tucked away in a box. (laughs) So many of them. And, of course, Barbara has quite a collection herself, too. Oh, she has. She's got more than her mother does. (laughs) I'm pretty proud of it. And one of the greatest joys was Bob was very ill uh, a year ago at the time of the Tevis Cup, and he wanted to see Barbara get her 30th buckle, and he, he lived for that. Oh, that's wonderful. So, so he did he did see Barbara get her 30th buckle. Now she finished again this year, so now she has 31. And And would you advise young brides to be sure to find a husband who shared those kind of interests that you had to give you the shared life that you had on horseback i mean that must have been giving you so much pleasure julie uh-huh. your life. well of course when we were married as i said we did, i didn't have a horse for 20 years and when i went uh, back to it uh we lived in sort of a suburban town and uh, my horse was boarded out and i said to bob one day I would love to have my horse in the backyard, and that's when he said, well, let's move up to the mountains and find you the place. And uh, then I got two horses, and he said, well, if two are going to eat, two are going to work. And so then he started riding. And that last uh, trip you did overseas riding in the Himalayas in 2005, are we going to reflect on that as your last one, or do you have others that you want to conquer? Um, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm, I'm sure that's the last, last one. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Bob is gone, and it would never be the same. And um, I'm reaching an age where I'm not really eager to leave home very far. And when I do leave home, I leave the animals that I love here. I'm very content, Chris, very happy. But you still have one ambition left, and that is writing a second autobiographical book. Tell us about that. Well, this is an autobiographical book. It's it's almost nearing publishing. Uh, it's called But It Wasn't the Horse's Fault. And the reason for that name is that every time I've had an injury and I go to uh, urgent care, uh, and they haven't been serious, but a broken collarbone, a broken arm, and a few things like that, uh, I always, the doctor says what's wrong, and I tell him, well, I think I've broken my arm, but it wasn't the horse's fault. That was to forgive the horse and... Uh, so that's sort of where the title comes from, from the, the, the doctor the last time I went in, which was actually several years ago, he said, you're going to tell me that it wasn't the horse's fault. And I thought, yeah, you're right, doctor. That's what I'm <laughs> going to tell you. It was something stupid I did. So my book actually starts out with a story of how the book was named and how I did a very stupid thing, was injured, and that it wasn't the horse's fault. Uh, when can we expect to see that published? I, I think by the 1st of February it should be out. It's, uh, I have a wonderful designer who's doing some cartoons. This is more of a humorous book. The other one uh, was sort of the story of my life. This one is a whole bunch of different stories. I call it, would call it what you call a put-down book. You can pick it up and put it down chapter by chapter. There's no real continuity between the chapters. Everyone's a little bit different. Well, finally, my last question, Julie. When you close the door at the end of the day, what has mattered most to you in life? A Bob. Your husband, Bob. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wonderful. Well, it's been an, an amazing life, Julie, and what a terrific career to look back on. 
and uh, to share with the family and your grandchildren, not, of course, forgetting your grandchildren as well as your children. I want to thank you very much indeed for sharing it with us, Julie. It's been a great joy talking to you. It's been my pleasure, and it's been a very privileged life, and I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of it. So thank you, Chris. It's been fun talking to you and getting to know you. Please join me again next time when we visit another equestrian legend.